All right, welcome back to the Canadian Gun Vault Behind the Vault Door. My name is Mark Morelli. I'll be your podcast host. Joining me today, a uh, new friend, uh, Mike Gruber. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Well, um, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you know what? I uh, couldn't help but think to myself that uh, this is a conversation that we should have in, uh, in full view of our audience and uh, give people an opportunity to hear some of the stories. Uh, we're going to keep this one short. I know uh, I'm kind of shy on time today. It's not going to be the last time we talk, but I know uh, I know that I wanted to kind of share with uh, the people listening uh, just a few things. You know, once upon a time, uh, your father now, who's passed, was a military service member here in Canada? He was uh, in the RCAF. Okay. Uh, he uh, trained out of Defoe in Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and uh, then he was shipped overseas during the Second World War. Okay. And, uh, and his name was Stephen Gruber? Steve Gruber, yes. Steve Gruber. You know what? If his name had been Hans, I would have lost my mind. There's, <laughs> there's a bit of an inside joke there if, you, if you're not up with the action Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right on. I, I still think it might be in the ancestry. You never know. Because, uh, <laughs> you know we go back to the Austro-Hungarian Empire, so yeah. you never know. Well, very very, uh, very cool. Uh, he was a member of the Air Force. That's right. And, and, and in what position would he have held? He was a, a bomb aimer, if you will, a bombardier. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he uh, trained in various uh, locations here in Ontario. And then, of course, uh, for the final training, he was out in uh, Defoe. And, of course, we could spend half an hour talking about the stories he told me, you yeah. know, just in training alone, let alone going overseas. Well, we're so. g- we're going we're gonna to get into those at some point. It uh, may not be today, but no. uh, so so ultimately, he would have been uh, a serviceman during the Second World War? Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, you know, what, type, what types of planes do you think he would have he been? Started, he started in uh, Bolingbrooks. Yeah. Okay, Bowleys. Yeah, that's what he did for training. And then when he got overseas, and of course the uh, the brunt of uh, bomber command yeah. was the uh, Wellingtons. Okay. A lot of people, uh, you know, kind of forget them because they weren't as glamorous, but they were uh, quite a bomber. Yeah. And uh, he flew in them for a couple of years, and then he graduated to the Lancasters. Yeah. And he was in the Lancasters for about a year or so. But Is that the uh, Canadian Cadillac? Is that what that would have been? Well, when you, that and the Halifax. The Halifax was also a big plane. In actually. The Halifax was a little bit bigger than Lancaster, okay. but the Lancaster had the four four Avro uh, uh, engines, the Rolls Royce engines, if you will, and they were uh, really quite a quite an airplane. You ever? Uh, I had an opportunity, actually, believe it or not, to fly. I know them. you told me. I oh, yeah. well, I told you I had enough. Well, the opportunity I had was I was in the plane when they were when they were uh, fixing it up. Yep. And a friend of mine, Wayne Reddy, who uh, was at War, uh, Warplane Heritage, and he was working on restoring the bowling brook, okay. uh, he uh, took my dad and I on a tour. And, of course, the reason he, he uh, was close to my dad, he worked at Harvester. My dad worked at Harvester in the, uh, in the powerhouse. And uh, Wayne found out uh, after he started there at Harvester that my dad was had been in the Air Force. Well, his dad flew Bowling Brooks overseas and unfortunately uh, died over the Mediterranean somewhere. Wow. So of course. Uh, he never really knew his dad because he was quite young when his dad died. Mm-hmm. And uh, then he sort of gravitated uh, towards my dad because of the Air Force connection. Yeah. So um, I reconnected with him in the craziest way. I was working at Monroe Metal Products, and we had a sheet metal shop. And Wayne was coming in looking for parts for the Bolingbrook restoration. And I happened to see his name, and I, said, and I thought, oh, my God, I hadn't seen him in years. And I said, are you the same Wayne Reddy that worked with my dad? And he said, oh, my God, yeah. 
So we reconnected. And of course, he was a good friend of my second cousin who lives in Detroit. That's another story. But, uh, <laughs> you tell stories like I tell stories. <laughs> yeah, a little all over the place, eh? I, I know. But knowing my, you know, knowing he hadn't seen my dad in a while, he uh, offered to take us on a tour, okay. which is really, really fantastic. Yep. And this is before the fire, well, uh, before the fire um, when the Lancaster's in that uh, hangar when the uh, place went up. And the interesting uh, part of that was that uh, as we're in the, uh, you know, in, in the, uh, the plane itself, we could only go so far because uh, the rest was restricted. Yes. But there was somebody working on the uh, control panels and all that, and he said, um, that gentleman, and, you know, it's like, you know, like things like that you don't realize. He says he was part of the great escape. And, of course, people don't realize. I mean, yeah, there you know, there were ones that escaped, but there were, uh, and unfortunately so many of them were executed by the Germans. But there were, there were hundreds who were who dug the tunnels, who worked uh, worked all the equipment and all that. And that, uh, you know, the, well, the, the majority of the ones that escaped were, of course, Canadians because, and they don't tell you this in the great escape, the Americans were shipped out a month before the, the, the escape. So there were no Americans. Involved. Okay. Now, when you talk about the Great Escape, just for the people listening that may right. not may not be as familiar with the history, like what what is, what is it specifically that you're referring to? The escape from? Well, the escape was from um, the um, the Germans would always keep certain denom- if you will, denominations. Yeah. Air Force was Lufthansa or whatever. Okay. Uh, they would be in in a certain prisoner of war camp. Yeah. So everybody in this prisoner of war camp was in one way or the other Air Force. Okay. So they had American Air Force, Canadian Air Force, British Air Force, whatever. Right. And uh, they were treated a little bit better than everybody else because the uh, Air Force was kind of echelons. And you got to remember, yeah. Hermann Goering, yes. who was second in command to Hitler, mm-hmm. was, uh, believe it or not, he's the one that took over Rick Vulcan's flying circus after uh, Rick Vulcan was killed. And he was a hero uh, in the Germans. And, of course, for the Nazi party, they used him because of his notoriety as being a war hero in the First World War. But anyways, uh, what would happen in these prison of war camps, they, uh, they treated the Air Force people little, like officers. Yes. They were treated at a, at a higher level. Okay. So, of course, the, uh, you know, the um, prison of war camp where uh, the Canadians were, uh, they had a little bit more freedom. So they were able to uh, maneuver back and forth in, in the camp a little bit easier than maybe some of the other prisoners of war, of war could. And they were building the tunnels, of course, to escape. And it's a very, you know, cool, comp- very complex scheme. And even the way they were, dis- you know, dis- disposing of the dirt, they put it in the cuff of their pants, and they would uh, open up the cuffs to let the dirt on. Wow. So that way they wouldn't know where the, you know, where little, the dirt was. A little, little bit uh, at a time, eh? And then they show that. They show that in the, in, in the movie, of course, The Great Escape. Mm-hmm. And um, But the ingenuity was just unbelievable. But, I mean... The uh, the duty of a prisoner of war was to escape. I mean, that's what they were supposed to do. Uh, you know, <laughs> make 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 a best effort and not end up dead. Well, well the, the, the the main thing that they were looking at was that by escaping, they would disrupt the Germans because they'd had to go looking for them. Mm-hmm. So that's X amount of troops are looking for these escaped prisoners. A draw, and a draw on resources. Exactly, exactly. Okay. And then uh, and of course. Uh, the Germans weren't too happy looking for these people because they escaped out of the prison that they figured it was, you know, you couldn't escape from, but they did it. But, you know, well, and, but, and, and so and so now your father, your father was part of this. No, no, no. no. When we saw uh, when they were when they were uh, rebuilding the Lancaster, yes. one of the people there and yes. then Wayne, Wayne Reddy pointed this out, that he was 
in the prison camp at okay. the time of the great escape okay. and that he was one of the engineers or, or architects or whatever and and here it is in hamilton mm-hmm. right in your you know it's more than uh it's more than just you know just the plane it's also the people that were involved with the plane people that were you know more or less unsung heroes it's 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 an incredible part of military aviation uh canadian you know, exactly. history. Exactly. And a lot of people don't realize here, here, right here in Hamilton, Ontario, oh my. we have one of only two still operational flying Lancasters. Exactly. Exactly. And, and folks, if you've never seen the Lancaster or heard the Lancaster go overhead, I mean, it really does have a distinctive sound. Those engines. Oh, but are, the amazing, the amazing thing, if you can imagine being in England mm-hmm. at that time and you had like a hundred of them going over your head. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I wonder what it must have sounded it like. Was, it was, it was unbelievable. And then, and then, you know, all the different stories, like uh, a friend of mine, when I was working in Guelph, he, um, he, he was living in Holland at the time, of course, just, uh, you know, like six years old. And what they used to do was, and don't realize that when they're coming back, they had to dump their ammunition because they couldn't land with their ammunition if they had any unspent ammunition. Okay. And what they would do is they would just drop it. In a lot of cases, they would drop it in a, in a field in yes. Holland or wherever as okay. they're going back to England. And then this friend of mine told me, he said they would pick up the cartridges, whatever, and use them as toys. Or, oh, God. And they would, they would you know. You know, uh, there, 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 there is, um, you know, I'm told a lot of still to this day, you know, undetonated ammunition oh, yeah. or munitions oh, yeah. floating around oh, in oh, Europe. Yes. And, and yeah, real because hazard. That, that was the problem. I mean, you had so, so much uh, munitions. And in the case of coming back, yeah. You really couldn't have them on your plane because you just couldn't afford it. And, you're, yeah, it might have been a bomb or whatever. I mean, you drop it into enemy territory, not into your own pro- in your own territory, but you dropped it because you couldn't come landing in with that. Probably probably the you know, wildest, to me anyway, the wildest you know, equipment disposal uh, that I had ever heard of was they were pushing apparently Spitfires and, you know, like warplanes right off the sides of aircraft carriers into the ocean. Well, you know, me, once let, about a time, it's like I, me, I was me, such a huge fan of let me tell you another story. Warplane <laughs> Heritage. Yes. They're, they're Spitfire. They had a Navy Spit. Yes. And one of the members was in Nova Scotia. Uh-huh. I'm not sure. He's near Halifax or whatever. I'm going back many years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. He uh, went to the local junkyard for whatever, looking for parts. And he sees a Navy Spit sitting over at the side. Mm-hmm. And he said to he said to uh, whoever the caretaker was, he said, "What's happening with that?" He says, "Oh, we're burning it tomorrow." Oh God! And he says, "What? What? What, what do you mean? Gosh. We're, we're using it. We're using it for a test for the fire department. We, we got no use for it. We're gonna we're gonna it. <laughs> we're gonna torch a spitfire." Yes. yes. And, oh and, and he God. says, "Stop!" He says, "For God's sake, stop! Let me call my people in Hamilton and, and, and see if we can arrange something for heaven's sakes." And he did, and he saved it. It's 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 amazing how some things are saved. I know in my in my 20 years uh, of service with the Hamilton Police Service, right. uh, I did what I could to try and salvage, you know, whatever firearms came our way that were historically significant. I, I pleaded with the chief. I've told this story before. Oh. But I pleaded with the chief over an MG right. 34, and he said it's a it's a it's a death machine. That thing is going in the shredder. I don't care. And I and I begged them to get it to a, a museum oh, and into a place where people could view it and it could be, you know, uh, acknowledged for the great piece of history that it is. I, 
you know, thinking that anybody would torch a, a Spitfire. I'm a huge fan of the Warbirds. I love World War II fighter craft. Anybody that doesn't, I think there's something wrong with you. The sounds that they make. But the problem, the problem was, and you can't realize, there was so much armament after the Second World War. Yes. You had all this equipment. Mm-hmm. And and my dad, oh my dad was so upset. My grandfather, well, when he went uh, when he went overseas, my grandfather lived on D'Arcy Street in Toronto, mm-hmm. and then he bought a farm when my dad was overseas. Mm-hmm. And in fact, uh, when um, uh, when he uh, had the farm, he actually had two prisoners of war working for him, Heinz and Fritz. They were mm-hmm. two German uh, POWs because they were. Uh, you know, rather than having him in a prison war camp, they had him working farms. Okay. And uh, But anyways, my dad finds out my grandfather's got 200 acres. Mm-hmm. Well, he's in the Air Force. All he had to do was ask them to drop off a Lancaster on his property. All he had to do was take it. What? And, yes, that's <laughs> what they did back then. Your Air Force, we're, you know, we, well, we'll, we're going to wreck this, we're going to scrap this, whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, of course, they, they, they turned a lot of them over into commercial use and all that because they had a lot of them faring, you know, equipment and whatever. But then the bulk of what they didn't know what to do with, they, they park it on somebody's uh, farm. Wow. Now, now, a very good example, too, is my, you know, like I said, Wayne was uh, restoring the Bolingbroke. Yes. They're looking for this certain part. It's like a, a strut or whatever where yeah. a bunch of fittings came together. They found out that there was a farm in uh, uh, up in Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and he had 25 of these bowling brooks just sitting there, 25 of them, because really? this guy had like a 5,000-acre wheat farm. So they go running up there. Well, what happened, of course, is the locals are using them for target practice. Oh, my God. Yeah. You see, see, the thing with, see, <laughs> see, the thing with the bowling brook was everything was physical. Like, oh. the levers and all that were all physical. They were oh, yeah. electric. Oh, yeah. So this one junction box that they needed, was, you know, was to put, all, put all, all the stuff together. And they're going through all these bowling bricks. They're all got bullet holes all through them. And then, lo and behold, the last one had the part they're looking really? for. Really? Yeah. Lucked it's, out. It, yeah, exactly. And then, of course, they shipped, I don't know how many of them. It, uh, you know, you have to ask them at Warplane Harry's how many of these bowling bricks they shipped back. Because they used them all for parts, because, uh, you know, that was the problem. The, the, the people at the uh, Heritage Warplane Museum do amazing things. Oh, if you, you know, and I'll, I'll give them a plug right now. Oh, I'll God. tell you, if you haven't been up to the uh, Heritage Warplane Museum in Mount Hope, uh, you oh, know, in it's the southern, well worth it. I mean, and, yeah. they also, uh, you know, they have the simulator. Yeah. Uh, they have, well, of course, the actual aircraft, too, that yeah. you can uh, get a pretty good uh, look at, because mm-hmm. you can literally uh, walk right up to uh, to look into the cockpit and that, and... Uh, and the work they've done has just been amazing. Well, the the restoration projects, uh, the number of aircraft they have up there, uh, the military paraphernalia that's present, uh, you know, the medals, the pictures, the oh. photos, the history. I mean, if you if you really want, uh, you know, to see and and feel. You know the the sounds of those birds. Oh my! Purring yeah, they, on the tarmac. I'll tell you, it very once. very much. They put you right into the into the feel yeah. of what was going on during the Second World War, and it's you know it, it's history that we're slowly losing, uh-huh. and it's you know in some way to hold on to that is uh, you know is to preserve our past. Well, that's why I'm talking to you, buddy. Absolutely. I, I'll, I'll tell you right now. I mean you. You weren't there, but you're privy to the stories. You were, you were, you've obviously had a contact, a direct contact with a lot of the people involved. Oh my! Your, your father, you know, like, I, I told you before, like uh, my dad belonged to the four four seven wing up at Mount Hope, yeah. and just to talk to the veterans up there, it's just, you know, the, the, 
it, it's a funny thing because when they come back from the war, and of course the bad things they're not going to talk about, yeah. and it's uh, it's kind of hard to get them to talk about. But after a few years, you know, they ease up a little bit, yes. and, they, and they don't get so, uh, so uptight. I remember uh, one of the um, one of the gentlemen up there, uh, Gord Thorne. Um, he was actually well. His wife was in the Air Force, and that's how Gore got into the uh, into the wing. But um, he was uh, he was with the uh, the Tank Corps, mm-hmm. and he went from believe believe it or not, the day after D Day, right through to Germany, mm-hmm. and he went through all that action and all that time. And Gord, when he went back to England to be uh, you know to be sent back to camp, he he forgot everything, completely went blank. He could not remember a single thing that uh, that happened to him in Europe, mm-hmm. and he says, for whatever reason, his mind was protecting him. He didn't remember any of that, yeah. and then he and Ruth, his wife, uh, went back to uh, France, and uh, they went to see you know the graves uh, like most of the veterans do. And I'm you know I'm going back a few years ago, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anyways, they went back, and I think he was at Normandy, because, of course, that's where he originally landed, at Normandy. And um, Ruth, uh, Ruth said that uh, there was, uh, all of a sudden, 3 o'clock in the morning, he's sitting straight up in bed, completely covered in sweat. <laughs> and then she says, Gord, what's wrong? And he says, I remember everything. Yeah. You know, <sighs> it's, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, here it is, the mind. You forget all these things. And then, you know, and then after talking to Gord, all the different stories he had, it was just, you know, some of the things he went through, it's just, you know, absolutely terrifying. I mean, can't imagine, you know, that, uh, you know, anybody could make it through something like that. And I could, you know, I could really understand why he would forget all that. Well, your, 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 your mind would repress it or suppress big, it. Big and, time. Very and, big and time. you're absolutely right. That would be a coping mechanism. Very uh, much better, so. Better to not remember. And, yeah. And, yeah. People, and, and like I said, and then when he did remember, like he was, like he was in a cold sweat, like, like he was in shock. Yeah. Yeah. And oh there, my God. It, it's funny, you know, even, uh, even in law enforcement to a, to a lesser degree, I would not you know, want to compare, um, you know, combat to to policing. However, you know, there is an element of uh, PTSD that comes along with policing. You know, uh, frequent, you know, long term. Oh, I know. Spread I, over the long term exposures. I, I, to, I, to I, recall, I recall there was a special done. There was police in Montreal, and they're doing a raid. Yeah. And of course, they're going through you know, all, all the different aspects of the raid. Yeah. And I remember the officer, and it was done for the CBC. And they do the raid, and you see them all up against the wall and all this. And the officer said afterwards, he says, what it is is that we're so high on adrenaline yeah. because we do something like that. Mm-hmm. He says, our families don't understand how we can't wind down. Yeah. He said, we just can't come home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we can't have breakfast and say everything's fine. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, you know, certainly it wasn't recognized uh, when I started policing as much. But by the time I was heading towards the end of my career, I could see that the administrations were spending more time uh, trying to tell officers how uh, they perhaps should try and uh, best relax post-shift. Like, I mean, oh, after a wild night shift in the hammer, you, you, oh. might, not, you might not want to go to bed right away. I'd come home. I didn't tell my girlfriend very right. often a lot right. of the stories 
but every once in a while, you know, I would let one slip out if there was a standout, you know, oh, throughout yeah. the evening. And she'd, she'd look at me and say, like, how is it that you're you know, not shaking right oh, now. Yeah, it's yeah, like, definitely, well, you definitely. know, and so you'd, you'd have to avoid having coffee. Don't smoke any cigarettes, you know, put yourself in a really dark room, uh, right. you know, maybe, maybe take a hot bath or shower before you go to bed to try and relax yourself. But ultimately you wouldn't get to sleep right away. No, that, that, no, that was an issue. No. Oh, and that is not Sam. You know what? That's okay. Hold on one second. I will just put that aside. Uh, what, what I'm going to say is this. Is in, is in policing, you know, uh, unlike combat, which I'm sure is absolutely uh, nuts. I mean, I, I've I've heard the stories, uh, you know, I've I've spoken to people over the years uh, that have that have been in those situations. Uh, you know, some horrible, horrible uh, things to hear uh, anybody going through. And so, like you said, uh, what I've noticed over the years is is people who have uh, seen combat will eventually open up to you. Uh, some people don't want to remember. Some people are, are quite comfortable talking about it. It all depends. It. it all depends on the yeah, personality. It depends on the person. Yeah. Uh, but, but ultimately, I think that one day a year uh, in November is not enough to respect the service uh, given you know, by these like, people. Like, you know, like I said, when you hear, you know, when you hear all the different stories and you know that, you know, you're losing the chance to record them. Yeah. And they're valuable. They're extremely valuable. Absolutely. And, you know, they're amazing. I mean, you know, it's, I can remember um, John F. Kennedy. He uh, won the Distinguished Service Cross for Valor. Mm -hmm. And I remember PT-109 was sunk, and he was the, uh, you know, the commander of that uh, PT boat. And I remember um, someone went up to him and said, you know, Mr. President, how did, how did you become a, a hero? And he, and he looked at him very deadpan. They sank my ship. <laughs> <laughs> you got no choice. <laughs> well, you know, you know, it, it's it's important that we hear some of the stories. Uh, like I said, you know, even though uh, you yourself weren't there, you you definitely had some great exposures to the people that were. And, and I love hearing about these things. And, and before we wrap this one up very quickly, um, you know, part of the reason why I came into contact with you was that, uh, of course, when your father passed, he had uh, a number of firearms. And it's, you know, it's happening more frequently that people are contacting me uh, to uh, assist in the distribution of, of firearms. Uh, you know, to collectors and to people that you know may uh, be able to appreciate the historical significance uh, connected to some of these things. And of course, you know, after we were done uh, dealing with that, you know, I started talking to you and, and began to appreciate the wealth of knowledge that is stored in your mind and, and the wonderful experiences that I thought we should share with our audience. But one of them was, you know, your father. Uh, he came home uh, with a, a small 32 caliber pistol. Uh, from the war, and I've told a couple of people this story, and people love it. But I'd like to hear it from you. So, what what well, exactly happened? Absolutely. There? Well, what happened? Of course, my dad originally had a Browning when he was uh, overseas. Yes. And uh, and he was always he uh, uh, enjoyed guns and yep. uh, you know possessing guns, and he had this Browning that he really really liked. Mm -hmm. And of course, I guess one drunken night of revelry, whatever, yeah. somebody picked his pocket, and uh, that was it for the gun. <laughs> And he was looking for uh, another gun to replace it. And, of course, well, he was stationed near York, like most Canadian uh, Air Force men were. Yeah. And uh, he met a pilot. Mm -hmm. Now, this pilot was ferrying uh, between England and India. He was taking supplies to them and back uh, from India. And uh, he had this sidearm. And, uh, 
Anyways, he uh, told my dad uh, the history of the gun as far as he knew. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, uh, he uh, obtained the gun from someone, apparently, who was uh, smuggled through France uh, through the French underground. And they gave him this uh, gun for protection. Yeah. And uh, anyways, I'm not sure how this pilot came in contact with him, but imagine when he got over to England, he really didn't have a use for the gun anymore. And what the heck if, you know, how many, uh, you know, how many bottles of beer would that gun buy? I mean, that's all that really mattered, you know. So he sold him the gun and then uh, this pilot was using it just, uh, (laughs) and I hate to tell you, but his, uh, what he would do in India was while they're loading up his plane, he'd be out in the jungle shooting monkeys out of the tree. (laughs) Wild times back then, man. Yeah, everything was sort of, you know, who knows what you're going to do tomorrow, but. uh, Well, I had, I had an opportunity to examine the piece before it got to the new collector that is now in possession of it. And one of the things that uh, it came, came to light was, you know, um, this, this was a unique pistol and it was called, you know, a unique, uh, it was a French manufactured pistol and, uh, you know, they were known to be produced, you know, back then in the late thirties, early forties. And, uh, they were small 32 caliber, uh, clearly influenced by Colt firearm designs, John Moses Browning designs, um, small and, uh, not, uh, not abnormal for the, uh, the time, uh, during, uh, which a lot of people carried, you know, smaller pistols. Instead of full size ones, you know, to have a nine millimeter or 45 was to carry around a big, big gun. But a lot, a lot of troops and a lot of people had possession of 25 caliber and 32 caliber, smaller caliber guns. Because they're a lot easier to carry around, Absolutely. especially when you're in the middle of action. You yeah. don't want something heavy and cumbersome and, you know? and bulky. And, exactly. and, and so, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, you know, um, there were a number of different manufacturers of firearms. Uh, you know, when the Nazis swept across Europe, you know, they took over a lot of plants and started having the, uh, the locals produce you know, versions of their firearms, and then they would stamp them with, you know, Nazi markings and, uh, you know, the Boromach. And of course, you know, looking, looking at this unique pistol and, uh, and knowing uh, that it came to be in your father's possession this way, uh, you know, we, we began to evaluate the gun. And it, of course, it was you that discovered that it had, in fact, been marked with, uh, with stampings. So yeah, it was amazing. Terms. Like, uh, Google it, mm-hmm. then there's a number of pictures, and it's the one picture that did look like the gun, mm-hmm. and I should have realized because I told you that the, the hand grips that shoots on it, which yeah. is nine shots yeah. in German, yeah. so it was definitely not French. It, it, it totally, it totally slipped past me. I, I, I like I, I was so I, busy being just completely enamored with the look of this thing. The finish was all gone off it, but I thought, yep, that's that's a well, French. I, I had I had it for a number of years, and I never really thought shoots, and I yeah. thought, oh. Okay. Yeah. But then I look it up, and there's the picture, and then you go, and right off, guns of the Wehrmacht. Yeah. Which is the German army. I'm going, oh my God. And then they showed you little, you know, little watermarks, if you will, on the gun and how they number the parts. And it's like, oh my God, it all fits. Yeah. And I yeah. thought, I'll be darned. I didn't, I had no idea. I always thought because being a French gun that it was a French gun, which yeah. it was in a way, yes. but it was actually for the Germans. The Germans well, to know, to know, to know though, that it got stamped with the German markings oh, yeah. means, uh, you know, how that, how that gun came to be, uh, you know, ultimately in possession of the person that gave it to your father is is going to be probably a mystery. I might speculate though. I got to admit when I went over, you know, Germans were notorious for marking every oh, part on the gun. Their the serial were amazing. Yeah. So so you know the frame matches the you know serial number on the hammers on the slide. You know they they numbered everything, and to see that the uh, slide and the barrel 
you know, have the same number, but it's different than the frame and right. some of the lower components, uh, really begs the question, if your father was in possession of this firearm from that time during the war until now, and it hadn't really kind of been circulating in the used market or amongst people with, that would change parts, how, how a gun from that period, you know, that would have been around during the time of forced labor, Exactly. Uh, and, and, and it really does beg the question, how does a slide and, you know, barrel, uh, that has one set of numbers on it, differing from the frame come together. You know, uh, I've heard the reports, you know, of, of the forced labor sneaking firearm parts out to the resistance and of course, assembling guns for people to use in the fight for freedom. And exactly. it makes me wonder whether or not this firearm wouldn't be, uh, something of that nature. Well, on the other hand, you got the French resistance and if they would, if they were, they were caught with the gun. God help him, because uh, the oh, trial was shortened to the point. Oh, yeah. And uh, here's an airman who's trying to get out of um, France. And, of course, realistically, uh, an airman is a valuable commodity because yes. he has a skill that really uh, you've got to get him back into the forces. Yep. And uh, they handed, you know, they gave this uh, this gentleman uh, this gun for, for protection. Mm-hmm. Um on the other hand, I mean, it's not just the Germans. You know, I mean, there's also uh, people that would sell them out for money or whatever. Yep. So at least he had the gun to, you know, have a little bit of authority as he's escaping. Well, and you know what? Probably the probably the most uh, entertaining part of the story is the last point we'll touch on is how your father managed to bring it back. Because oh. see, a lot of people don't <laughs> a lot of people don't realize, you know, uh, trophies of war was really a thing back in World War II. And if you could score yourself, you know, a Luger, uh, you know, a P thirty eight, people came back with whole machine guns it was a different time oh, yeah. man uh, oh, yeah. you know there there was an appropriate way to uh you know apply you know to to, to bring back you know uh trophies of war uh, not the kind of thing that was always handed out but i know when a number of canadian soldiers were coming back a lot of them got word like that's it that's enough like i mean we're not letting any more in nobody else is approving of things tell i want you to tell the story about well, how your father managed to get it back into absolutely the country. well Number one, I mean, like I like I had said, he lost a Browning when he was over there. He's yep. upset with that, so he, he bought this. Uh, <laughs> Clearly, unique. a gun lover. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, he had the unique seven point seven point six five, and uh, he was he came back on the uh, Queen Elizabeth. And I remember he, uh, he told the uh, story. They had rough seas the whole way. Yeah. And you have to imagine, here is the largest sh- uh, ship in the world. And it was going up on waves that were 60 feet high. Oh, and what was happening was the boat would be coming down yes. at such a rate. He said the, the able-bodied seamen on, on the boat were throwing up. Oh, yeah. He says the air crew were loving it. Oh, really? They thought yeah. it was hysterical? Well, it was like the air pockets. They had air pockets like that all the time. He said they were used boys. to it. It's like an elevator, like you're in an boys. elevator. Right. <laughs> so of course, they're kind of laughing. And here are these guys that they got their heads over the side. But anyway, anyways, and of course, they had them packed in there like uh, because the U-boat threat was gone. Yep. So, of course, they had them packed in there like sardines. Anyways, about a day or two uh, before they hit Halifax, the story went out. If any of you have contraband, you better get rid of it because we have metal detectors. When you guys get off the boat, we're going to scan you. Check and if you got any guns or whatever, you're going to you're, you're you're in trouble. We're going to confiscate. We're going to take your name, whatever, yeah. and you're going to be in, in big trouble. 
Well, my dad thought, thought, well, that you know, here I am. I've been overseas for a couple of years. I've stuck my neck out. Mm-hmm. You know, I put my life on the bloody line. If somebody wants to take the gun, then let them put their let, let them put their <laughs> life on the line because I'm not giving this gun up. And he says, sure enough, they dock in uh, Halifax. And he says, on the uh, uh, you know, on the other side, uh, you know, here all all I hear is portholes opening and guns being thrown out the portholes. And all you hear is it was like a, a, a crescendo of splashes as, he's, <laughs> as these guns are hitting the water. And, and then my dad says, to hell with that. And he goes, and he goes out, he goes on a gangplank. There's no metal detectors. They were, they, they was, it was their cheapest way of getting these boys to get rid of their guns. Well, you know what? <sighs> Bullshit baffles brains. That's exactly you know right. I, I, that's, exactly that's, right. that's a favorite a favorite phrase uh, from my uh, former policing years. I I, I I can tell you that a lot of people don't realize how many firearms managed to come back into the country. Oh, that there still way. was quite a few. Still, well, I'm was sure. The same attitude, my dad. I mean, I'm you sure. know, I, this gun got me through the war. It's going to get me back home too. Yeah, I, and you know what? The first time uh, I remember you telling me the story, you said they're going to have to take it from me. That was that was definitely you yeah. know, your father's kind of position after everything that he'd been through. They were going to try and relieve him of uh, a 32 caliber, right. you know, ACP, right. tiny little, you know, pea shooter of a gun. Like th- that obviously had some uh, personal uh, significance of for course. him and, and some meaning for him coming from a friend. Right. Uh, it was it was it was clear to me, uh, you know, a long time ago that a number of soldiers had come back from World War II. Uh, certainly in my years of policing, I got to see, you know, the aftermath. You know, a lot of families were in possession of these things because ultimately. A lot of guys came back with them, and then years later, like right. I'm talking, I'm talking like you know, in, in the in the '60s, clearly there was a movement to uh, get people to register these. That's guns. right, there was. They had a, a period of grace, amnesty. That you, yeah, an amnesty yeah. period, and you could take them to your local police station, whatever, have it registered, yep. and then it was legally yours without anybody asking questions, and which is only fair. And, and you, because it, at least the police forces knew where the guns were at, and uh, and if a certain serial, and and this is the, you know, the craziness like if there's a crime committed with an illegal gun there ain't no serial number on it that's the first thing they do is file out the serial number i mean there's no way to really trace well i i, I can tell you that to, you know to this very day you know smuggling uh, firearms uh, across the border from the united states is still very big business oh. uh you know they've got they've got a serious problem there uh the firearms that were brought into the country after world war ii the a, a lot of them were registered a lot of guys really did want to obey the law of and, course. and they went through the necessary of process course. to have it registered to their names your father was one of them of course. uh you know and of course, upon his passing, and now, uh, of course, the time has come for you to pass it on to, to others, and you know, to enjoy, to appreciate the significance exactly. of. And and I got to thank you for getting in touch with us in, in, in order to make that possible. Uh, I can assure you that the person that uh, that is going to be having that will be using it. Well, the uh, bottom line, yeah. bottom line is to be appreciated. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, was well, a weapon of war or whatever, but it's also something to be remembered as part of that war. Yeah, that it was a significant part, and it's to be appreciated, not to be thrown and melted down or whatever. You know, I, I think I think that, uh, you know, a lot of people that listen to this show, certainly a lot of people that uh, watch what we do at the Canadian Gun Vault, know that we appreciate the historical significance and the great stories that come a lot, along with a lot of these firearms. Uh, I'm really, really glad that you got in touch with us. And I, like I said before, it's definitely not going to be the last time you and I sit down and talk. I really do enjoy talking to you, Mike. 
Well, there's so many things to talk about. All right. Well, then you know what? We're going to have to have you on again. Okay? <laughs> no problem. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. I do appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Mark. And uh, you know what? We'll definitely be speaking again soon. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe to us on YouTube and on Instagram. And as always, Canada, don't forget to shoot straight. Stay safe.